we ask for your mercy and blessing as we approach your word. We recognize that we're flawed individuals, that we don't understand without your Holy Spirit, that we can't open our eyes to your word without your Holy Spirit illuminating our minds. And we know that it's a closed book to the unbelievers. And actually, when we're out of fellowship, it's a closed book to us, too. And we ask that you'd open your book for us this morning, that you'd feed your flock. We recognize that we're the sheep of your hand, the flock of your hand, and that that we depend on you for our well-being. We depend on you to feed the flock, and we ask you to give us understanding as we read in Jesus' name. We're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. I'm sure some of you thought I'd never finish up John chapter 6. For those of you who haven't been paying attention, we started in John a year ago in June. And uh, we've gotten six chapters, and there's 21 chapters in John. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot here. <clears throat> we've, we've had about 50 messages from the book of John, and we've only gotten through the first six chapters. So today we're starting a new chapter, chapter 7. <clears throat> and the context changes somewhat. Uh, He's not teaching his disciples. He's not arguing with the crowd. He's not doing any of the above right now. He's actually back home at his physical home. <clears throat> uh, we're going to read through John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 25 through 30 in the same chapter, and one verse out of chapter 8. Uh, the title is, My Hour Is Not Yet Come, But Yours Is Always Ready. Uh, that's what Chuck was asking me about, and I was joking with him because he usually checks his cell phone and finds out from the internet what the title is because the sermon notes are posted the day before. <clears throat> in fact, we've got a couple people in the church that are sneaking their phones into church and they're reading my sermon notes as I try to preach from them so they know when I mess up. <clears throat> Sometimes we wonder why things happen and how they fit into God's wonderful plan. I don't know if all of you remember, but back in the 70s, there used to be a tract written by Bill Bright that's called The Four Spiritual Laws. Have you ever heard of The Four Spiritual Laws? Law one is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, okay, I used those a lot when I was a new believer. <clears throat> but for a couple of reasons, I quit using them entirely eventually. For one thing, the central premise God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it sounds good, and technically it's true, because God does love you, and God does have a wonderful plan for your life. It doesn't always look wonderful from our perspective. Okay, And you're telling people like a salesman, saying, you're going to love this. No, you might not. You might not. We're going to talk more about why. And... You know, there was millions of people down through the ages that have been persecuted, have lost everything they own, lost their kids, lost their belongings, lost their freedom. Some of them died horrible deaths rather than disown their Savior. That doesn't feel very wonderful. There's been people that went through long, hard times and, and never really aware of God's presence in their lives, wondering why he wasn't there to help. When it turns out, yeah, he was carrying them. <clears throat> it, always makes me cry when I hear the story of Fanny Crosby because she wrote thousands of hymns, wonderful hymns, and she went blind as a very little girl, and the first thing she ever got to see as an adult is the Savior's face. 
because she w went blind and stayed blind the rest of her life and lived in poor conditions. And, and when I hear that story about her getting honored in Moody's church, it just thrills me. You know, the, for once, everybody knew who she was and where she was, and I don't know how she felt about it, but it blesses me to hear about it. It always makes me cry. <clears throat> the real issue, though, that made me quit using that tract entirely is that it left out the core issues of the gospel. It was a sales pitch. It was, everything's going to be great in your life if you just receive Jesus. Well, sorry, that ain't so. That's just not so. See? You guys are going to have to whisper quieter, please. It's not what the gospel says. It, it, it doesn't, it's not a sales pitch. And it doesn't, the last thing it said in those things was to pray this prayer and receive, you can see, receive Christ by praying this prayer. That's not the, what the gospel says at all. Jesus said, believe the gospel and be saved. When the people asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? The answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Not pray this prayer or go forward in church or raise your hand in a uh, youth group or sign this tract or whatever. <clears throat> and I'd heard all those in many, many different ways before I actually received the Lord as my Savior. And I didn't know I was saved for two years thereafter because I didn't know which of all these things I had read was actually correct. None of them were. I didn't find Jesus because of a tract. I found him because of the people sharing with me and because of what I saw in their lives. And finally, I made a decision to trust him for my own Savior, not knowing that that's how you got saved. So I kept thinking, well, did I pray the right prayer? Did I confess all my sins? Guaranteed I didn't. I can't count them all or remember them all. Okay. So there's a lot of the reasons I quit using that tract. See, the rest of the gospel, too, that we read in the epistles, goes on to say in Philippians 1.29, it says, For unto you it has been given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. And nobody puts that in tracts. Why? Because it's not a good sales pitch. Evangelism isn't about salesmanship. Evangelism is one beggar showing another beggar where to find free food. And that's it. It's no more difficult or no more easy or however. It's no more simple and no more hard than that. Okay. Those kind of things aren't in tracks. Maybe as a new believer, you started finding out that things were getting a little bit worse, not better. See, the issue is the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior, you chose a side in a war that's been going on for thousands of years and that you didn't even know existed before that. And so all of a sudden, you're the newest recruit in an in a army of God, and things are getting tough. And maybe right off, you started learning just on the learning curve that, well, I guess things aren't going to be as easy as I thought. I, you know, there's, there's hard things here. <clears throat> the more you read of God's Word, the faster your learning curve went. <clears throat> but the fact is, you started finding out right away that things aren't like it said in that tract. And then people started asking you questions that you can't answer. They say, well, how could a loving God permit these things to happen in my life? Maybe you asked that yourself. I, I sure did, you know. Well, we need some answers, don't we? So 
Jesus starts talking in, in John chapter 7 and says some real, real interesting things. Let's read this. First nine verses, <clears throat> John chapter 1. I'm reading, excuse me, John chapter 7, verse 1. I'm reading from the King James. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry. King James uh, means Judea, <clears throat> because the Jews sought to kill him. Okay? Now the Jews. Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, therefore, this is his physical brothers, his biological half-brothers, half <clears throat> said to him, Depart hence and go to Judea, that thy disciples also may see thy works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. <clears throat> if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. <clears throat> These things, uh, th excuse me, then Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Okay, that's an interesting comment all by itself, and that's why I chose that as the title. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. <clears throat> when he had said these things, these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. They went on up to Jerusalem. I keep saying down to Jerusalem because it was south, but physically it was uphill. So always when the Bible talks about going to Jerusalem, it talks about going up to Jerusalem. Because <clears throat> it's a long uphill climb. So one of the first things we see in that passage is the Jews were looking to kill him. Jesus knew it, and apparently it was common knowledge. We're going to see that later. Uh, his brothers apparently didn't know that. And in the middle of all this, we're not going to go there today, but the people who were trying to kill him, the ones who were actually conspiring against him, they denied the whole thing. They said, what? Who's trying to kill you? You must, you must be demon-possessed to think something like that. Okay. But he knew that it was true, and we're going to find out. Everybody else knew it was true, too, that the authorities were trying to kill him. <clears throat> Some people have a problem with the idea that Jesus had some biological brothers. A lot of people ascribe to the idea that, that Mary never had relations with Joseph. Come on, guys. It flat says she didn't have relations with him until after her firstborn son. Oh. So then in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we find out that they named four of his half-brothers and said that he had sisters, plural, as well. So he's got at least six siblings, half-siblings. <clears throat> we're not going there today. But his half-brothers were kind of mocking him or challenging him or something. They say, hey, you know, this is what you think you are? Get down there and show them. Get up to Jerusalem and show them. But see, they said, if you want to be famous, do this. Well, being famous wasn't his goal. That wasn't his primary goal in life. He had a job to do, and, and that job before the Lord involved walking a very narrow path, think tightrope, narrow path, not to fame and fortune, but to the cross. That's what he came for. He came to die. He didn't come to get famous. Sure, he got famous later. <clears throat> and he, he stated this in John chapter 4. He says, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he reiterated it later in chapter uh, 18, I guess, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, not my will, but thine be done. 
See, it was impossible for Jesus to do anything but God's will because he is and was God in the flesh. So God the Son was in perfect harmony with God the Father, and he ended up doing exactly what God the Father wanted because his will was completely knit to, him, to the Father. <clears throat> but the other thing we see, we already saw, is that Jesus already knew the Jews wanted to kill him. I don't think the brothers were fully aware of that. And John pointed out in verse 5, they also didn't believe in him. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't see him as the Savior. <clears throat> he was just their eldest brother. There's scriptural evidence that Joseph had died by this time and that Jesus was the head of the family. And he wasn't behaving like they thought a head of the family ought to behave. He was off with this stuff he's doing instead of leading the charge and making the household make better money and get you know, be in better shape. He wasn't doing that. And they thought, they thought that's what he ought to be doing. <clears throat> but his reply to them was that they could head on up, but that he would not be leaving yet. And he explained, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. What a strange thing to say. <clears throat> and he went on to say, the world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Okay. So he said to them, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. This is not the only place he makes that statement, this, my time is not yet come. If you remember when we were in John chapter 2, and I realized that was like 10 months ago, in John chapter 2, that's what he told his mom. When she says, they're out of wine, she says, he says what, what have I to do with you, woman? He says, my time hasn't come yet. But then he went ahead and made wine for him. And there are other times later on when that comment's made. We're going to see some of them today. <clears throat> so what was Jesus telling him? What he just read here, what he just said. Let's break it down a little bit. He said four things. He said, my time has not yet come. Okay? We're starting to see why that is, that his life was completely choreographed compared to ours. We're, we're flat-out sloppy compared to what he was doing. <clears throat> number two he says your time is always ready number three he says the world cannot hate you number four he said the world does hate me because I testify of it that his works are evil okay so why did he say your time he, my time is not yet come but your time is always ready <clears throat> so Jesus is the only person in history whose entire life was completely choreographed from our perspective, we've got so many choices to make, and sometimes we feel like, I don't know what God wants me to do. In Jesus' case, he never had choices to make, in a sense, because he always knew exactly what the Father wanted him to do, and because he was God in the flesh, he always, that's what he wanted to do, too. It wasn't a hard choice for him. It was a tough choice in terms that it cost him, cost him his life. But step by step, day by day, everything he did, every word he spoke was exactly what God wanted him to speak. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. He was God the Son, and he was completely in cahoots with and in fellowship with God the Father. So he never said something that was outside of what God wanted him to say, and he never failed to say something that God wanted him to say. It was always right there. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing. <clears throat> I don't think any other human in history could say that. <clears throat> when I say I, I want to do God's will, I have to simultaneously admit, and I don't always understand what it is. 
then I have to pray for God's leading. I have to fall back on the written word of God and, and see what his general instructions are to the whole church age, all the church age believers. The reason I specify church age is because that's where we live in the church age. <clears throat> and his instructions to other ages were not exactly the same. But I have to fall back on the general assignment for the church and trust him to lead me as I go step by step, try to follow him. And Jesus didn't have that problem. He knew the Father's will, and he was completely in agreement with it. <clears throat> so Jesus knew the Jews wanted to kill him, but he also knew, I've got an appointment. They can't take me away from that, and I'm not going to step away from that. Now, possibly, he knew that when he told his brothers to go on down to the feast, up to the feast without him, it's possible that he recognized that the Jews were waiting for him there and that the brothers would be in danger too if Jesus showed up with them. I don't know. It doesn't say that, but that kind of makes sense. <clears throat> Jesus knew that they were watching for him, but it was also not time for him to be glorified in death, so his entrance was going to be quiet. It was going to be kind of secret. He didn't come in in a procession riding on a donkey and people yelling, Hosanna because it wasn't time for that yet. But in contrast to his choreographed life, our lives can be shut down at any time. I don't have any promise for tomorrow. You know, we, we worry about each other's health and we pray for each other and so forth because we know that we're very, very fragile compared to all the, the dangers in our world. Uh, I know that God's taking care of me, but I also know he could take me home right now. You know, we don't have a promise of tomorrow. James warns us of that, <clears throat> says that we need to, to look at it through God's eyes and realize that, that we don't have a promise of tomorrow. God gives us a lot of latitude in decision-making. He also gives us a whole Bible full of instructions as to how to make good decisions. And he lets us know that bad decisions can be fatal and certainly have a cost either to us or our family, <clears throat> or both. <clears throat> but James remind us, reminds us that our lives are like a vapor, a little puff of steam that comes and goes, and it's just gone. Okay. Jesus knew exactly how long he was going to live, and he knew exactly what to do at all times. And none of us can say that about ourselves. So we can see why he would say that our time is always ready, and his had not yet come. Well, what about when he told his brothers, uh, the world cannot hate you? Well, I feel like they hate me sometimes. There's a difference. He told his natural brothers, the world cannot hate you. And later, through the, God, through the apostle John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, he says, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Expect them to hate you. Is there a contradiction there? No, there's not. Why? Because in John 15, the Gospel of John 15, verses 18 and 19, speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why didn't they hate his brothers? Because they weren't believers yet. They belong to the world. They fit in just fine. 
after people become believers, they no longer fit in the world. We no longer belong in the world. As long as I was an unbeliever, I was accepted by the world to one degree or another. They might have thought I was a weirdo. They might have thought I was a punk. They might have thought whatever they wanted, but they at least recognized, yeah, yeah, I know him. And they accepted that. But the day I trusted Jesus as my Savior, something changed. I was no longer on their side. I no longer belonged to the world. And the longer you know Jesus, the more you're not going to fit in the world. Why? Because now you smell like Jesus, and they do not like that. And it's going to affect how you get along with everybody. Jesus' brothers still fit just fine because they were not believers. His disciples didn't fit at all, just like we don't. <clears throat> so why does the world hate Jesus? Well, he said it's because he revealed that their deeds were evil. <clears throat> Back in John chapter 1, verse 4, right after we'd read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we also read in verse 4 that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse 5 it says, And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's King James English. The, the word comprehend there is an old English word that meant to overcome. And the flavor there of that word is to overcome or to extinguish, not to understand. It's true that the darkness doesn't understand the light, but it's also true that the darkness has never been able to overpower the light. It's never been able to extinguish the light. And I think if you'll check your newer translations, they all say that. And that's correct. That is what it is in modern English. <clears throat> the darkness is not able to extinguish that light. Why don't they like the light? Well, we've talked about that a lot. But we're given to understand that this light is more than just physical light. You know, everybody likes a nice day, a sunshiny day, but <clears throat> this is not that kind of light. It's not photons. It's not like light waves. Uh, it's, it's the moral light of God's presence. And that's what Adam and Eve couldn't stand after they ate that fruit. They ran from his presence because they couldn't stand his presence because of the moral light that showed them as naked, hell-bound sinners. Okay. First John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message that we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We, we, we like the one that says God is love because we think that means he feels mushy about us. No, that's not what it means. But when we see the word God is light, we think, uh, uh, we don't get much out of that unless we stop and think about it and realize that Jesus is the light of the world. Okay? The, the whole character of light is to, dis, to dispel darkness. It reveals things. It says, whatsoever doth make manifest is light. It's from Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> that even this tiny light, a little birthday candle, a match, anything in a very dark place is enough for us to see where to walk. Some of you have been in those circumstances where you have a tiny, tiny light source and your eyes adjust to that little bit of light and you walk safely through a dark place with a tiny, tiny lamp. Okay, That's the character of light. Well, in John 1.4 we saw that Jesus is our only source of light. He's our only source of life. And he does dispel darkness. <clears throat> so in John 3.19, when Jesus says this is the judgment, that this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, we know he's not talking about physical light. We know he's talking about the moral light 
that Jesus was talking that he had talked about earlier. He's not talking about people whose eyes are hurt by bright lights. You know, some of us have trouble with that when we wear sunglasses when we're outside because the light hurts our eyes. That's not the kind of light he's talking about. He's talking about the light of the presence of God that the world can't stand. And it couldn't stand it in him, and it's not going to be able to stand it in you. If you're walking with Jesus, they're not going to like you. That doesn't mean for you to act like they shouldn't like you. You pour out the love of God as well as the light of God. They don't have an excuse for not liking you. But they're still not going to like you because you smell like Jesus and they can't stand that. Jesus is the light of the world. He says so in John chapter 8, verse 12. We're not going to go there right now. <clears throat> We've preached on it before. But as physical light dispels the physical darkness because it's his character to do so. Jesus, because it's his character to do so, has exposed the evil of the world. They don't like that. The world hates him for that alone. They don't hate him for healing people. They hate him because he makes them look bad, because they are bad. He shows them up for the evil that's in their lives. That's why they hate him. <clears throat> they don't hate him for doing good. They hate him for exposing the fact that they're doing evil. But he was on a timetable, a schedule. You notice what happened when he went up to Jerusalem later, down in verses 25 through 30. If you read <clears throat> John 7, 25 through 30, uh, verse 25 says, Then he'd gone down to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. It says, Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? So everybody knew about it. But lo, he speaks boldly. And they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? That sounds almost like conspiracy theory, doesn't it? Only they were right. Because the boss people knew this was the Messiah, and they did not want him. Some of them knew it. Some of them didn't admit it to themselves. <clears throat> Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit, we know, we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knows whence he is. And then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. The problem is not that you, don't, that you know me or don't know me. The problem is you don't know the one who sent me. <clears throat> but I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. And then they, the ones he was talking to, the ones that said, Isn't this the guy they're trying to arrest? Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. See, they couldn't overstep God's schedule. <clears throat> so the six points that got brought up in that little passage. Number one is the people recognized Jesus as the one that the authorities were trying to kill. They said, that's him, isn't it? And they marveled that he spoke openly and the authorities were doing nothing. Not right then, anyway. <clears throat> And they speculated that possibly those authorities knew that he really was the Messiah. So this is starting to get people thinking, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? I wonder if they know that he really is the Messiah, and they're just not telling us. But the, but the problem that went along with this is they did not know the Scripture very well. They thought that no one would know where the Messiah came from. They wouldn't know his origin. But the Scripture tells in great detail where he was going to come from, what lineage, what specific lineage in terms of who was his forefathers and so forth, and where he was going to be born. 
and what was going to happen during his life. They, all this stuff was laid down in prophecy. There's like 300-some prophecies in the Old Testament. They should have known all that. But they said, well, nobody knows where he's coming from. No, you don't know. <clears throat> but Jesus' answer was, yeah, you do know me. You know me, but you don't know the one who sent me. And then they all tried to kill him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. So it's an interesting little story, isn't it? He knew when his hour was, and they did not. But in spite of the fact that they didn't know when his hour was, they couldn't do anything to change it. They wanted to. They couldn't. <coughs> Same thing happened in the next chapter when Jesus taught about his own testimony and that of his father. He was teaching in the temple talking about his testimony being true and that of, of his father being true and so forth. And in John chapter 8, verse 20, he says, These things Jesus spoke in the, t in, uh, in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him. Why? His hour was not yet come. Say, he was on a schedule. The problem is we're not. We do not know how much time we've got left to serve the Lord. You need to think about this. I don't know how much time I've got. Richard didn't know how much time he had. Pat didn't know how much time he had. None of us do. My wife and I knew a young lady that we both knew in high school, a uh, beautiful young Christian woman, and at a very young age slipped on an icy sidewalk and smacked her head when she fell, and it killed her. She went home. She wasn't being punished. She was a good, godly woman, but she, her life got cut short. We don't know when our time is. <clears throat> so we need to be thinking about that. See, it seems we're not in control of what happens around us. We think we are a lot of times. A lot of people write poetry and music about being in control. You know, I'm going to do things my way and so forth. No, not necessarily. <clears throat> the fact that they couldn't do anything to him because his hour had not yet come kind of makes it sound like maybe God was in control, doesn't it? funny thing. A little bit later in the same chapter, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to read it on your own, verses 32 through 46, the Jewish rulers in the temple decided they better do something about it, so they sent officers to arrest him. That's simple enough. Go bring him in. <clears throat> so the officers got there and they listened to him. And they didn't lift a hand. They stood there listening to him and listening to him, and they finally went back empty-handed in the in verse 45, the, the, uh, it says, These officers came back to the priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why have you not brought him in? And the officer's only answer was, Never man spake like this man. Nobody ever talked like this. You see, the authority of God was shining through Jesus at a level that made every human, even those that were sent to arrest him, stand in awe and realize this is something special. I'm not going there. <clears throat> so who is in control here? Well, obviously the answer is that God is. This whole passage, John chapter 7, should begin to teach us about the authority of God in our lives, in all things, including our own lives and how long we're going to live and what we're going to accomplish. You know, a lot of us have big plans and things we're going to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But James tells us that you don't know how long you're going to live you don't make your plans saying, I'm going to do such and such. I'm going to go to such and such a city. I'm going to live there for a year. I'm going to make a lot of money and come home. He says, you ought to be saying, 
if the Lord wills, I'm going to go and do these things. And if I, if I live that long, this is what my hope is. You don't know. And I don't know. <clears throat> if we can accept, see, we argue with God a lot. If we can accept his will and submit to his authority rather than constantly protesting about it, saying, well, it's not what I wanted. I know none of you guys have ever done that. I do it a lot. <clears throat> if we can accept that this is the honest word of God, if we can see that nothing could be done against God's Messiah except that it completely fits his timetable, then it should give us a sense of confidence about our own lives, of knowing that if I can walk with Jesus, then whatever I get done and the amount of time I've got will be to his, his liking. If I'm actually doing what he's told me to do and doing, going where he sent me to go. It doesn't have to be as big a thing as I th thought I wanted to do. It doesn't have to be, you know, being rich and famous or, you know, write the great American novel or uh, a hit song that'll last through the ages. or You know, it doesn't have to be any of those things. There's a lot of us that have talents and desires and hopes and dreams, and it doesn't have to be any of those. If I'm doing what God told me to do, where he told me to do it, then the day he takes me home, he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if not, not. It's just that simple. See, my position in him is safe forever. But my condition goes up and down like a yo-yo. And sometimes I wonder if the yo-yo's even got a string. You know, it goes down and doesn't come back. But the fact is, my position in him is, is safe forever. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, If God be for us, who can be against? That's true. Please, Buy into that 100%. If God's on your side, you don't have to worry about what everybody else is doing. The only thing you've got to worry about then is whether you're on his side. <clears throat> Romans 8.28 says something a little bit different. We love to quote the first half of it. It says, well, we know all things work together for good, dot, dot, dot. See, we don't quote the second half. What it actually says is we know all things work together for good to them who love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. Oh. We can rest easy in God's will if the latter half of that verse is true about us. But without it, the first half is very questionable. I don't know things are going to work out well for me. Things didn't work out well for Samson. Why? I mean, he was a mighty man of God. Yeah, but he didn't exactly walk with God. And he ended up blinded and working for the enemy and a miserable, miserable wreck of a believer. But he was a believer. He's listed in, in Hebrews chapter 11 as being a man of faith. He's in God's hall of fame of faith. We can rest easy in God's will if the latter half of that verse is true about us, that we're that we love God and are the ones that we recognize that we're called according to his purpose. And yes, you are called, whether you know it or not. <clears throat> we don't know how much time we have left to serve the Lord. Jesus said, your time is always ready. And that's a fact. We can keep wasting time and thinking we'll catch up tomorrow, but we're not guaranteed tomorrow. There's things that if I don't do it today, I may, maybe tomorrow's too late. There's times that I was going to do something tomorrow and... Somebody showed up early, and I didn't get a chance to make my preparation that I wanted. Okay, it's too bad. There you are. You didn't do it. <clears throat> I'm not promised tomorrow. Now, I'm directing this against myself as much as anyone else. 
please don't take this like I'm poking at you or something. We just need to use our time more wisely. And that's across the board, that's true. And that's what I'm mainly getting out of Chapter 7. We're going to have some more out of Chapter 7. This is not the only thing, but this, this recurring thing about my time has not yet come, but yours is always ready is what I wanted to address this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to draw us along to number our days and to recognize how short our lives are in light of eternity. Help us to not waste the single opportunity you've given us to work beside you in your field and to serve as your ambassadors in this life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.